Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 11th, 2022. I'm talking to you, as always, from San Francisco, a Friday. Uh, earlier this week, I did an interesting show with um, an analyst on power, Brian Klass, the author of a, a best-selling book, Corruptible. And we talked about what a, a scan of Vladimir Putin's power-addled brain might tell us. For better or worse, we don't have that MRI of Putin's uh, power-addled brain. But I, I do want to begin my conversation today with some brain talk, perhaps about brainy and brain talk about Putin. Lots of um, headlines today about Putin inside his circle, the real Russian elite. Uh, and Putin's increasingly being characterized. Here's a BBC piece about him cutting a solitary figure. He's sitting on his own. He's isolated. And this indeed reflects the fact that in a poll from last year, trust the T word in Putin dropped to the lowest level since 2012. Uh, Russia has always been a low trust society, so I'm guessing it dropped pretty dramatically. The T word, of course, is all important, not just with Putin and his brain, but also in our increasingly untrustworthy uh, world. Uh, and one of the world's leading thinkers on trust is Stephen M. R. Covey. He's the author of three books on trust. He's got a, a new book coming up, Trust and Inspire. will be out the first week of April. And um, his other books, The Speed of Trust and Smart Trust, uh, were both massive New York Times bestsellers. I'm thrilled and honored that Stephen M. R. Covey is joining us from his home. Um, just out of just outside a ski resort, resort in Sundance uh, in Utah. Uh, Stephen, you're not a Putin expert, and I don't want to put you on the spot here. I don't expect you to be watching Putin carefully. But you think if we were able to see his brain, we would see a crisis in trust, perhaps in himself, certainly of those around him? Probably is the truth. And, and um, um, you know, he, you certainly... Uh, the the fact you showed that poll that the trust has dropped lower than it's been since 2012. And like you said, to begin with, it was low, but I'll bet that those around him, I bet there's a crisis of trust going on as well. And, and, um, and it's probably been as low as it's ever been. So it's, you know, he's, he's relying upon his position and his power, not upon, you know, a moral authority stance. And, he and is your ultimate, and, and, and you deal with this in the book, he's your ultimate command and control guy, isn't he? he is, he's, he's the model that you think is basically history is archaic and doesn't work anymore. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's the authoritarian command and control. He's not at the, uh, at the enlightened area, the improved version. It's the old version of just position is power, might is right type of thing. And, and, um, and yes, that... There might be some countries that have a model of that in some societies, but that doesn't work in organizations today. 
It's, it certainly it's, does. And your, your book, and, and as I said, I mean, you're not a political writer, so I don't want to put you on the yeah. spot on Putin. You write mostly about organizations, corporations, society, and also families. Um, when I was reading your book, um, uh, I, I thought of my old friend Richard Edelman. Um, every year he comes up with what he calls a trust barometer. It always seems as if it's falling. The 2022 Edelman Trust Barometer recognized that, uh, again, I'm quoting from the Edelman site, societal leadership is now a core function of business. But before we get on to that in your book, um, Stephen, is trust in crisis? Edelman, always, his barometer always seems to suggest it. Is trust continuing to drop, not just around the world, but in America itself? Yes, absolutely. Um, Edelman, the Edelman barometer is a superb gauge of it. And, and like you say, it continues to seem like it's going down. But there's no question that, that um, there's a crisis of trust in most societies in the world. Certainly, it's happening in the U.S. as well, where the trust has gone down in institutions. You know, trust in media, trust in government, trust in political parties, even trust in NGOs has gone down. In some cases, never been more. And what came, what emerged from the recent Edelman Trust Barometer is that that business, for the fact, the fact, you know, there is some lack of trust in business, but they still were higher than other yeah. institutions, and so there's an opportunity and a responsibility on business to help be part of restoring trust, building trust in society. And it's kind of a switch in roles because often it's been the other way around where business is not trusted. And right now there's a little bit more trust toward business. And so that gives them a stewardship, a responsibility to try to, to, to not abuse that trust, but rather to spread it and to increase trust in society. I think there's a great opportunity for that, but there's no question that, that we're in a crisis of trust. And it tends to perpetuate on itself. Distrust is contagious. And people respond back more careful, cautious, guarded, because nobody wants to get burned. And It's a pandemic, isn't it, in, a, in an odd way, Stephen? Sure. Um, I mean, obviously, we live in the age of COVID. Uh, lack of trust, I guess, doesn't kill you like COVID. But it, it has a, similar, a similarly pandemic-like quality. Absolutely. It's a pandemic in the sense that it's contagious and it spreads. And and distrust and and suspicion tends to create more distrust and suspicion. And then everyone uh, feels justified in the process and we find ourselves perpetuating a vicious downward cycle. So that's it's a good analogy. It's in a sense like a pandemic in that it is contagious and it spreads. And you, in a uh, to extend that analogy or metaphor, Stephen, you're in the business of vaccines. <laughs> for this crisis of trust. You're not just a best-selling writer. You're also the CEO of Franklin Covey, which is a, I guess, a, a, I don't know how you would describe it. I think of it as a business consultancy, which is very much focused on building more confident and trusting and trustworthy executives. Um, and you're also, of course, a writer, as I said, your new book, Trust and Inspire, How Truly Great Leaders Unleash Greatness in Others. Uh, will be out the first week of April. Do uh, as a CEO, do you think as a writer, or as a writer, do you think as a CEO? Are they kind of the same thing? Do you do you have to swap hats sometimes? Yeah, so, sometimes. But I think that my past experience as a as a CEO has actually given me more credibility 
when I take the role as a writer because I'm more of a practitioner. And, and I, I approach this not just as a theorist, but as a practitioner, someone that's doing the work and the like. And, 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 um, and just for clarity, I'm not currently the CEO of, of Franklin Covey. Right, I apologize. I realized yeah, I no, made I'd, I'd been the CEO of Covey Leadership Center, which was the merged entity into Franklin right. Covey. And I am the CEO of uh, the, 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 the trust work that we do and the, and the Covey Link organization. So I am a CEO. Um, and so I do think like a CEO, and I think that informs my writing. I think it's better writing because of it, because I always understand the importance of making a compelling business case for why this matters, as well as a leadership case for why it matters. And then also, I think it makes, it, it puts a standard on me to make sure I get into pragmatics, into practical, tangible, actionable things that people can do to become a trust and inspire leader that's so, you know, the kind of leadership that's needed in our new world of work. And, and uh, so I think that that CEO mindset is hopefully additive to, to the writing. I mentioned COVID earlier. Do you think that these last two years have compounded our crisis of trust? The fact that we're so physically isolated, you and I are now talking over the computer, you probably spend most of your days on Zoom or, or Restream talking to people that we physically aren't able to get together, particularly in the office. Is this an opportunity to deal with the, 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 the pandemic of last, lack of trust or has it just made the pandemic worse? Both, depending on the company, the leader, the circumstances. I've seen some organizations actually increase trust during this pandemic by how they've approached it. And for example, the idea of that people in many cases for the first time were working from home or working from anywhere, they're doing remote work. And, and prior to the pandemic, there, there was not that much of it. It was like 8% of total days was remote. And I think it peaked at 65% during the pandemic. So a lot of people went that route by necessity and some leaned into it and actually used it to build more trust. And, they, and here's one way they did it. And, it, and again, it, this was not a, a technique. It was more that it was an extension of who they are and as leaders and as a company, they showed, that, they showed their people that they trusted them to work from home. They declared it and they said, right. we trust you. Here's the expectations. Here's the accountability. We trust you. And the same token, there's been other organizations where trust has gone down because people were working from home, they're remote. And many employees in those companies felt like we're not trusted. We're just now being micromanaged from a distance because they have no choice. And, and they, it, it screams, you know, surveillance and other things of you're working at home. We, we can't trust you. We got to hover over you in new ways using technology because we don't trust you. And in cases like that, it really did um, accelerate the decline in trust. So I've seen both happen in organizations depending upon how they went into this. And do they lean into it with saying, we're gonna trust our people or now, are they leaning into it with, we have to really micromanage our people in new ways. And so that approach Stephen, makes all the difference. Many HR managers and CEOs are confronting the question of, whether or not they can or should want to 
reestablish the physical office in a post-COVID world. Hopefully we are now tiptoeing into that post-COVID world. My dear friend Julia Hobsbawm has a book coming out um, next month called The Nowhere Office, Reinventing Work and the Workplace of the Future. It seems to me, and correct me please if I'm wrong, that HR people are less eager than employees to go back to, to, to maintain the virtual office and that they're the ones who want to go back to the office, whereas most, most of us who have been working from home over the last two years actually enjoy it and want to maintain that. Is that a fair generalization? I think so. I think there's some data that shows that as well, that, that most employees, most people have actually liked this, working from home. I think there is a, and that, and that, but many people in leadership positions, either HR people and sometimes even CEOs and line leaders, they're worried about um, the culture. They want to keep the, they want to build a culture, keep a culture. They're worried that it's harder if it's all remote. They're also, in many cases, worried about collaboration and innovation under the premise that we need to be together to do that best. And so, there's, there's kind of pressures on both fronts and we'll probably see a number of iterations of this and a number of models on this coming, but some hybrid version is probably going to be more common when it's all said and done where, you know, people will be w working from home or working from anywhere, the nowhere office. And at the same time, in some situations, they will be uh, um, coming together maybe a couple of days a week. And and um, where they were rather than just having people spread out their time, they probably will. You'll see more and more around maybe Tuesday and Wednesday. Or again, I'm not an expert on work like Julia is, but this idea that that they're going to try to get some combination, some hybrid version that will work for them. But I know the concern is there's both the productivity issue, but I think that we've learned in this pandemic that you can keep productivity pretty high. Some studies show even higher than perhaps before. The concern has been around the culture and the collaboration and the innovation, but there's also some data that says if you're intentional about that, you can also keep that pretty high. And it's just, but you have to be intentional. And that's what this Trust and Inspire book is about. It's saying, look, the world has changed all around us, but our style leadership has not kept pace. We're still too much in the old style, the command and control. We've become better at it. We've become an enlightened command and control which is better than authoritarian, but we, we've got to think differently about how we lead in this new world. Why, new why world. is this, Stephen, that leaders have been so slow? Uh, your, um, your, book, your, your, your book, Speed of Trust, of course, brings up the great Alvin Turfler, the uh, tech writer who wrote Future Shock, which yep. suggests that speed would define the 21st century. Of course, he was right. Why are leaders, in your view, so slow when they're pretty quick in other areas? Are they simply resistant, obstinate, avoiding the subject? I think that they're often not even aware of the fact that that there's gaps in it. They, you know, one of the reasons that gets in the way of becoming a trust and inspire leader is that we is that we think we already are one, and they say, "Yeah, yeah, I'm doing that," but that's not how their their team and their culture experiences it. And so they're often not even aware the the idea that fish discover water last. They're so immersed. We're so immersed in a in a culture in a in a 
world of command and control, it's just embedded in our structures, our systems, our processes that we're often not even aware of it. But the pandemic has accelerated the timeline. Stephen, of you say that trust, um, uh, command and control, which is the opposite of, of trust, um, is embedded in us. Is it embedded, do you think, in our brains? Uh, I began this show talking about Brian Class, his book on power. He's very much of a, very influenced by neuroscience in terms of making sense of power. Um, some people believe that there's such a thing as the neuroscience of trust. Paul Zak, I'm sure you're familiar with his work. Um, can we... Or do we need to re-architect the brain or become neuroscientists if we're to if we could if we're to confront and defeat the pandemic of mistrust in our contemporary age? I, I don't know that we have to become neuroscience, but I think we should understand the neuroscience. And Paul Zach, he is an expert on on neuroscience and on trust. And this is a brilliant article, The Neuroscience of Trust. And it's from and the it, Harvard Business Review from 2017. Yeah, it's fabulous. And in it, here's what his data shows on that very article, that in high-trust cultures, that the people, the employees, are 100, 106% more energized, 76% more engaged, um, with uh, 40% less stress and burnout. You know, so, you know, there is a culture of well-being to have a high trust culture, a, a culture of energy and joy. It's also more collaborative, more innovative, more productive, and it comes from trust. And the brain does release a chemical called oxytocin when there's trust. And so I don't know that we have to become the expert on it, but I do think that we need to see what trust does to people, how it inspires them how it brings out the best in them, how they're inspired by it, how they rise to the occasion and recognize control doesn't do that. That operates on fear and trust operates on hopes and possibilities and the belief of people and their potential. And that's an inspiration as opposed to kind of a carrot and stick motivation of command and control, you know, more rewards, carrots, more sticks, punishment versus trust and inspire, which is inspiration that is inside of people that, that, uh, you know, to inspire means to breathe life into. So you breathe life into something that's, that maybe didn't have it before and, and uh, you ignite the fire within and that can burn on for years apart from this. So I do think this is where leadership is going towards inspiration as opposed to just motivation, which is external. Inspiration is internal, intrinsic. And it's a better way to lead. And I put it this way. People, and it's a better way to follow, of course, as well, even, isn't it? It's a better way to follow. And I put it this way. People don't want to be managed. They want to be led. They want to be trusted. They want to be inspired. We all do. And so trust and inspire is aspirational. It's what we want. It's what we need. And But, we're, but we've been so deeply rooted, scripted in the old model of command and control um, that we're, we're not making the shift fast enough. We know about it from Toffler to others, Peter Drucker. I mean, this is not... New. Yeah, I mean, Drucker created a whole literature, a whole, totally. a whole discipline, a formal university Drucker, discipline on it. Drucker basically said everything. <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing, Andrew, to know and not to do is not to know. The problem here is, is there's still a gap. Our intent is good, but our style of leadership hasn't changed. Our style has gotten in the way of our intent. We've got to shift our style. And you shift your style when you shift your paradigm. 
how you view people, how you view leadership. So that's what Trust and Inspire is all about. The idea that you give people, you know, that people have fundamental beliefs of how they see people, that there's greatness inside of people, and that the job of a leader is to unleash that greatness, not to try to contain or control people. And that people are whole people, you know, body, heart, mind, spirit. So your job is to inspire, not merely motivate. Well, you've won me over, Stephen. Um, I trust you. So now all I need is a job and then I'll be your follower. (laughs) We are talking with the great Stephen M. R. Covey, perhaps uh, the world's leading thinker on the idea of trust. His new book, Trust and Inspire, will come out the first week of April. He's also the author of two massive bestsellers, The Speed of Trust and Smart Trust. I want to take a short break now, Stephen. And then after the break, I want to talk a bit more specifically about models of trustworthy leaders. I want to talk about corporations. I want to talk religion. And I want to talk Richard Nixon. So hold on, everyone. We'll be back in about 60 seconds with Stephen M. R. Covey, the author of Trust and Inspire. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this Um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, If you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, In terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We're back with Stephen M. R. Covey, the author of Trust and Inspire. Um, it will be out first week of uh, April. I've been very lucky. He trusted me with an advanced copy. I've read it, and it's up there in terms of its value and its readability with his previous bestsellers, The Speed of Trust and Smart Trust. Some of you, of course, will confuse Stephen M. R. Covey with Stephen Covey. Uh, who uh, is, again, an incre- was an incredibly uh, successful business writer. He wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and uh, The Eighth Habit. Um, so in a sense, this issue of trust and business writing is a family business. Stephen, 
you imply in the book that trust, or more than imply in some of your speeches and writing, that, that trust is an essentially um, a, a criteria that determines good families, healthy parenting, and what it means to be a re- responsible child. I'm curious, what did you learn from your father about trust? What I, what I learned was really what I'm writing about in Trust and Inspire, because my father always modeled behavior. He didn't ask us to do things that he wasn't going to do. So I saw a model in him, but he also trusted us. He trusted us as kids. He trusted me and he believed in me and helped me come to believe in myself. And I tell the green and clean story that he talks about in Seven Habits, where he, when he trusted me to take care of the yard, the lawn, as a seven-year-old boy, and and I, you know, and I rose to the occasion and took responsibility and and made sure the lawn was green and clean. And it was a great illustration of just the uh, of a win-win agreement. He called it. I called it trust. I felt inspired me, and then also me a sense of uh, purpose and inspiration. That's the inspired part of that. Life is about contribution, not just accumulation. So we're always trying to create meaning and add value and, and, and have a purpose. And so I was fortunate. I acknowledge that to have a great home situation. Not everyone has that. So I feel a sense of responsibility stewardship to say, um, what if we could uh, try to increase in our homes of, of trust and inspire type. As a parent, you believe in your kids, or if you're an aunt or a non-parent, whatever it might be, or even a friend or a neighbor, that's the godfather or something that your job as a leader, your parent is to try to help communicate the potential, the greatness of your children so that they can, so that they can come to see it in themselves. And that's great leadership. And that's great. Parenting is the best in, in your kids. Yes. You want to hold them accountable. You want to do all these things, but you also want to give them a vision for who they are and what they can do, what, what they can accomplish. So, I Do you think, think for parents to create good, trusting children, you need to also give them space to rebel? Sure. That's part of it. I mean, if, if you try to dictate methods and that you must do this or that, and it's all prescriptive, that that's really not trusting. That's, that's a command and control approach, that here are the rules and you will follow these rules, the T, and there's no... no no deviance or there's no trust in that. There is, hey, look, I trust you to make smart decisions and I trust you to, to do the right thing. And, 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 uh, and I give you, you know, some, 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 some free reign in doing this. You teach principles, you teach important values, but then you got to trust them. And that might include that they have to find their path and they make mistakes and they learn, but they feel trusted as opposed to controlled by parents. If you try to control them, and as soon as they can, at age 18, they're out of there. <laughs> if they're not early, out of there earlier, but, but you know, they, it's like an employee just putting in his time and then they leave as soon as they can. They give you the minimum when they're disengaged and uninspired. Children, a child can be the same. So yes, you got to give them that space and that freedom. You trust them to do the right thing and they need to figure that out for themselves. That's part of it. We, we talked uh, before the break about the Edelman, the 2022 Edelman Trust Barometer, which suggests that societal leadership is now a core function of business. 
Uh, yesterday, I, I talked to the Berkeley sociologist Carolyn Chen, whose new book, um, Work, Pray, Code, suggests that Silicon Valley companies in particular, but also corporate America more generally, um, is increasingly confusing work and religion. I, I, I'm curious, in terms of the way in which you present trust, where does the church end, Stephen, and the family or the corporation begin? Or are you, in, a, in an odd way, importing religious ideas into the workplace and the family? No, I'm not, consciously not, because that wouldn't be appropriate and it wouldn't work. What I am trying to do is incorporate principles that work, that work throughout all cultures, all societies. Oftentimes these principles are also espoused by um, enduring religions as well, but they don't, they don't belong to those religions. They belong to the world, to human, humanity, to humankind. Uh, a principle like trust, a principle like integrity, a principle like fairness, and, and the like. These are basic human principles of effectiveness that have endured that don't belong to any religion, but to all religions that endure, and also all societies, and all peoples, and all cultures. And so, so if, you, if you keep your focus on principles, then you can, then people can apply them in different contexts with different applications that are going to be relevant in their context, their circumstance, their culture. If you try to prescribe practices or applications that are based upon a religion or anything else, that's not going to be universal and it's not going to fit everywhere. So intentionally know that this is trying to focus on universal principles that are hard to argue with because they're so foundational to society, to humankind. What do you make of her thesis, uh, Kara? I'm not sure if you would necessarily agree. I think my sense, at least, in my observations of big tech in Silicon Valley, is there's some truth to her argument in work, pray, code, that work has become a religion, not because work is bad in itself, but because of the the spiritual crisis, the spiritual vacuum in America, yeah. as well as this pandemic of uh, of the lack of trust. Uh, do you think there's some truth to that, that because everything else seems to be going to hell, work is our last refuge and the corporation has become the, the one place where we can both get and give morality? Uh-huh. It's an interesting premise. Uh, when we finish this interview, I'm ordering the book. <laughs> yeah, I think you'll find it interesting. I'm not sure you'll agree with all of it, but yeah, it's fascinating. But, and it can be read very much in parallel with Trust and Inspire. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating premise to me. And I understand, I think, from what you've said, the idea, which has a lot of relevance. I can see it. And in a sense, it's almost what the Edelman Trust Barometer is saying, that business now has a societal leadership responsibility. <laughs> and in a sense, that's kind of saying, look, that the responsibility to say we need to build trust, if business is leading that, in that sense, that's playing this role. So that's that's why it's fascinating what, what, what this book is suggesting, and I'm going to learn more about it. I will say this, that the need for, you know, for purpose, for meaning, for contribution is very high. 
And that's, you might call a spiritual need, if you will, not a religious one per se, but a spiritual need and that you, you have a desire for purpose to matter. That social, uh, I mean, some people call this simply social capitalism. Are you a, a fan of the idea of social capitalism? The basic idea, yes. Um, you know, the, the conscious social capitalism of trying to elevate society through what we're doing. Um, and, and, um, and to have an interest inspire, I even talk about how we try to, that because we believe that leadership is stewardship, not just position, but stewardship, inherent responsibility, that our job as a leader then is to put service above self-interest. Because the self-interest will take care of itself, but to serve, to put that higher, in a sense, that's part of this conscious capitalism. It's not that we're against shareholders, but we're trying to take a balanced approach to this of all stakeholders. And putting service above self-interest is one such way of serving all stakeholders. It's also a way of contributing, of, of contribution, of, of purpose. And people are seeking that. They do long for that. There is a void. And so in that sense, I can absolutely see how if you go to work and you have a sense of purpose, of meaning, of contribution, how that's going to fill part of what may be a void in your life that maybe in the past wasn't, but maybe today is, and therefore work can fill that void. But that, that can be a good thing for companies as part of inspiring their people is that what they're is that the work that they're doing matters and it makes a difference and that certainly matters we, we had a, a british writer roman krisnarich on the show um who, who writes about our responsibility to be good ancestors not just mm. in corporate life but broadly i wonder what your arguments about trust and inspiration how they uh impact on the debate about the environment and global warming. Does this mean, do you think that corporate leaders should be more aggressive in leaving a world that is healthier, less polluted than the world of 2022? Yes, because in a sense, it's a stewardship. We're all ancestors then. You agree with Roman? I have not read his book, but probably based upon what if I understand it, yes, that a stewardship is the whole idea that we have an inherent responsibility to, um, to serve and to leave, you know, the idea you leave something better than how you found it. And, and, um, and, and, but there's a st distinction between, you know, the idea of stewardship and the idea of just position and power, which is very much a command and control idea, stewardship. A trust and respire idea. So command and control is going to be about your rights as a leader. Stewardship is about your responsibilities as a leader that could include sustainability, that that's very important in our world today. And especially when you take the vantage point of all stakeholders, not just only shareholders. Now, all stakeholders doesn't mean shareholders aren't included. They are. But that's a broader vantage point Stewardship is the essence of it, and that includes sustainability for our, 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 our world. Uh, finally, uh, Stephen, I want to talk about different kinds of leadership and trustworthiness. Uh, the great company, as you know, out here on the West Coast is Apple. It seems to, however, other, however much other companies stumble, Apple continues to be astonishing, breathtaking in terms of its valuation and success. And it 
it's realized they're under two um, enormously different kinds of leaders who I think create very different kinds of trust. Steve Jobs and the current CEO, Tim Cook, they work closely together. I guess they trusted each other, but they create a very different kind of trust, don't they? I mean, they're, they're, they're very different models of what a trustworthy leader could be. How, how would you explain them? Yeah, and, and again, the, the, there's more than one style, right? More than one right answer. And, and uh, Steve Jobs obviously was such a creative force. He was and- a bit of a... a- he was a bit of a command and control guy, wasn't he? he was in probably a, way. a bit more command and control, but he was such a visionary that he had such a soft possibilities and things that that actually, in his case, worked. It'd just be hard to replicate that, though, because not everyone has Steve Jobs' genius. And so, um, you know, can it work? Sure. Is it is that easy to replicate? No. Very difficult. You have to have someone of that that's that uh, magnitude of terms of how he thinks and, and it was such a visionary whereas tim cook and again i haven't worked with tim but but from what i understand it's more collaborative and and um and and so he's more probably a line of uh, along the lines of what i'm talking about right of trust and inspire of of uh involving and collaborating and innovating together as opposed to kind of a, a single uh, primary genius behind it and is there then, is there um, Stephen um, one business leader today still alive who you wheel out as the model? I know that no one's perfect, but is there someone in particular you perhaps have worked with or you've watched closely over the years that is is the example of of how to how to essentially smash the command and control model? Yeah, I'll give. Uh, there's, there's many. I'll mention one who I think has done a wonderful job is Satya Nadella at Microsoft. Right. If you think about it, there's been really a remarkable revitalization of Microsoft from the time he took over. They always were big, right? But but they were fading a little bit in terms of their relevance. And you're being cool. polite, Stephen. It's certainly I'm being polite. They were fading. And, yeah. and, um, and, and drifting towards less and less relevance and they weren't the cool place to work anymore and they weren't innovating. Nadella came in really as a trust and inspire leader. He modeled, he trusted and he inspired. And through his style of leadership has completely revitalized Microsoft. Their stock price is up, I think 10 times from what it was when he took over. But it's not just the economic result of the stock price, it's they're innovating again and they're and there's far more collaboration before it was, it was internal competition. Now it's far more collaborative. They're more innovative and it's a great place to work again where people are drawn to it. And he's done it through his leadership style and through, you know, the idea of a growth mindset, not just for himself, but for everyone. And that's trust and inspire. That's believing and seeing the greatness, the potential in people. So he's been a great illustration of, of a trust and inspire leader it's also had great financial success for the organization as well as cultural success. And, and they're winning in the workplace with their own people and they're winning in the marketplace. They're relevant and, and because they're innovating. And so those are the kinds of things that are needed. I would also say Cheryl Batchelder, former CEO of Popeye's. 
thought you were going to say Cheryl Sandberg. I would have pushed back on you on that one. I went, no, I, I, it was Cheryl Batchelders. She's someone I know, I've worked with. She's a remarkable leader. What she did at Popeyes, again, the great financial success, but she did it the right way. Trust and inspire. She modeled, she trusted, she inspired and built a great team and culture and economic value. But she served all stakeholders. Um, you know, there's many. Eric Yuan at Zoom is a remarkable leader. Very much a trust and inspire leader. So there are many, and we need examples because we got a lot of examples of and models of command and control. We need more of trust and inspire, of that this is a new way to lead in a new world, and it's a better way to lead. And you get you 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 win in those two epic imperatives of our time, to win in the workplace by creating a high trust culture that inspires people, and to win in the marketplace by collaborating and innovating. So you stay relevant in our changing world and you can't command and control your way to a great culture or to great innovation. You got to do it through trust and inspire. Finally, uh, Stephen, what about the role of technology itself in creating more trust? Um, as a Silicon Valley person, we're obviously thinking in those terms I've had. I'm sure you're familiar with Don Tapscott. He's an old friend. He's been on the show several times. He believes that blockchain technology in itself, because of this radically transparent database, which no one can fiddle with, can create a new culture of trust. Do you believe that new technologies like blockchain, which are, of course, the foundation for uh, cryptocurrency, can they also be an important piece of your new world of trust and inspire? Or do we tend to be a little bit to believing in technology? Should we focus more on human beings? It's probably some combination. I do think that technology can be a catalyst and can be helpful in creating trust. I also think that it can, it can um, go the other direction too. Not harnessed right, not done well. I do, so, so I'm not against technology, I'm in favor of it. Um, and we need, and, and technology can also create tools and processes and, and ways that we can engage with all stakeholders and collaborate that is very helpful to build trust. And, and, um, and so I think technology is part of the solution. I, I think the danger is if we view it as, as the primary driver and don't recognize that, that people ultimately are programmers, not just programs. And so they write the technology, they create the program and we need to go back to the, the people being the programmers and focus on the people. Because if I'm, if I'm a, as a leader, if I have a command and control mindset, it's how I see the world. I tend to design systems and structures based upon that mindset. And I design the technology for my organization to, to be utilized based upon that mindset. But if I have a trust and inspire paradigm, see that there's an abundance, there's, a, there's enough for everyone. I tend to design systems and structures and technologies around that mindset. So I do think there's a preeminence that comes back to people. Um, but I do, but I, but I'm, I'm in favor of technology. It can be very useful. And, and there could be some of these new, new technologies that are, could in and of themselves help create trust. I also fear though, that in some cases they could diminish trust. So that's why I want to say it's part of the solution, but ultimately let's go back to the programmer to the people, human um, um, wisdom to, to guide this. 
Wisdom is the word, uh, and if there is a wise man when it comes to writing about trust, it's Stephen M. R. Covey. His new book, Trust and Inspire, How Great, How Truly Great Leaders Unleash Greatness in Others. It's out the first week of April. You need to order it now. Uh, he's also, of course, the author of Speed of Trust and Smart Trust. Um, Stephen, what else should people be reading to perhaps rebuild trust in the modern age or just simply to have fun? in March 22, uh, 2022, when we have so many other rather depressing things going on in the world. Yeah, I'll give you a book I just got um, from a friend of mine who's a brilliant professor, uh, Dr. Christine Porath, professor at Georgetown uh, University in the business school. She wrote, a, she's, she wrote the original book called Mastering Civility, mm. an expert on civility. She's now written a brilliant book called Mastering Community. It just came out in the last week, oh. Mastering Community. And it's all about how, you know, we live in a fractured society and fractured communities. We're so divided. And this is all about how we, as we master communities, not only inside of organizations, it's both inside of organizations, communities, but also in communities and how this is a key to our success and our happiness going forward and how we can do this. So she's, she's brilliant. She's bringing some of the great insights she brought to civility now to community, mastering community, extraordinary book. And from a, from a, just a marvelous person, uh, very insightful. She's someone you'd love to have. On I'd love show. to, can you introduce me? I'd love to get her on the show. I'll do it. Absolutely. You. Well, wonderful. It's an honor to talk to you, Stephen M. R. Covey, the author of trust and inspire. Finally, Stephen, you're as well positioned as anyone to answer this final question, which I'm giving to all my guests these days. Uh, Stephen uh, M. R. Covey, uh, who, who runs the world? Who's in charge these days? Here's my answer to that. I'm going to be a little bit non-conventional. Principles run the world. Principles that are, that are universal, that are foundational. And so, therefore, leaders who follow principles, principled leaders ultimately run the world because principles have proven over time to endure and to work. And so rather than any personalities, principles govern. And if our values are based upon principles, then that will be, then we'll be aligned and it will, and it will work. And so leaders that have values based upon principles Will ultimately govern and and uh, and lead our world. We need and we're in great need of leadership for our world. We need principal leaders.